Welcome to the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast, where we talk about the clinical and practical issues that face those working in the mental health industry. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health. My name is Erin Mellano Bailey. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Cognitive Behavior Institute, and my co-host, Dr. Kevin Caridad, who is the owner and CEO of Cognitive Behavior Institute. This week, we are joined by our guest, Alexander Antonucci, who we're very excited to have with us. Alexander is a licensed professional counselor who treats individuals and couples for a range of challenges. In addition to being a Gottman Certified Couples Therapist, Alexander has a master's degree in transpersonal counseling psychology from Naropa University and has trained with some of the world's leading mindfulness and meditation teachers. So Alexander, we all know you very well as uh, one of our uh, colleagues at Cognitive Behavior Institute. So we're really excited to have you with us uh, today. So thanks so much for taking time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. How can you tell our listeners how you got interested in mental health? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I find the more I talk with our colleagues in the field, uh, somewhat of a trend, at least for me, I had a pretty sort of life-defining event happen and, and the shape it took for me, you know, late high school, early college. I don't know, a lot of people don't actually know about this about me, but I was actually really heavily into bodybuilding. And so I was spending six days a week, a couple hours a day uh, in the gym, working out. My life outside the gym was around nutrition and training, training others, developing things. And I actually went to college for exercise physiology. I wanted to open a gym. I wanted to train. I wanted to sort of continue to do all these things. And, uh, and then I got injured. I injured my shoulder and it effectively sort of pulled me out of that space, the, the activity that I spent most of my life doing, the, the friends that I was associated with, everything kind of fell out from under me all at the same time. And, and I became really aware in, the, in the, um, the weeks following becoming injured, how fragile what I was building actually was, right? I could only have it if I stayed healthy. I could only have it if I was sort of in top health and performance. And that really, first of all, was incredibly depressing, right? But that really got me thinking about, do I want to continue building this? And, and I got really curious primarily about the roots and, and the nature of human suffering and pain. And I kind of started looking in a direction of, is there anything out there that is not so fragile and subject to change like this? And, and if there is, what is it? And so thus kind of began a series of events becoming really interested in mental health and, and kind of the human condition in that way. So tell me a little bit more about, uh, you've gone on to mindfulness, you've gone on to certified Gottman uh, therapist. Can you speak a little bit about what the certified Gottman uh, is? Because I think that's a huge deal, as well as the mindfulness and then how that kind of with your history, your education, and now your specialization, how that all comes together. Absolutely. So Gottman Method Couples Therapy is, is perhaps the most research verified form of couples therapy on earth. And, and what uh, Dr. John Gottman and his wife, Julie Schwartz Gottman, and a lot of Dr. Gottman's, uh, Dr. John Gottman's colleagues over the years 
they, they've followed over 3,000 couples from around the world, different ethnicities, different ages, kids, no kids, newlyweds, retirement age couples, and so on, and really did extensive research on all of these relationships to identify what's consistent between these relationships, what exists between all of these folks who are in these committed relationships, and is it possible to tell what makes these relationships go well and be stable and have the participants in these in these relationships report being fulfilled and satisfied and so on. And it turns out that, that the researchers were really able to define a number of elements that are extremely predictive of relationship satisfaction and, and stability, upwards in a, of, a, of a 95 to 96% accuracy and prediction rating, which we very, very rarely, if ever, see in the social sciences. And so what a certified Gottman therapist credential is, is essentially the highest level of training and the implementation of Gottman Method Couples Therapy that is offered through the Gottman Institute. Now, part of the reason why this directly plugs into my history and education and interest, which we can get into in a little bit if you like, is that so much of what Dr. John Gottman and his colleagues were searching for when we talk about conflict, when we talk about uh, connection and attachment, there were so many biological markers, physiological occurrences that, that happen in these participants' bodies. And, and I mean, attachment science is all about the biological impact in the moment of relational interaction. And so that is so infused in Gottman method as a model. And part of the reason why that's important to me is that there have been thousands of studies directly related to mindfulness practice, looking at just those same things, physiological changes, physiological differences, not, not just experiential changes, which are also really important, but the fact of asking this question of what is effective, what actually makes changes here, what works? And so the sense of awareness and attachment come together for me in Gaba Method Couples Therapy, as well as being a mindfulness-based therapist. And can you tell us a little bit about some of the benefits of mindfulness? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, when I think about mindfulness, I guess I put this, this idea of benefits in a couple of different categories. You know, first of all, let's talk a little bit about what the earliest, earliest, earliest teachers of mindfulness pointed out. Um, this comes, it happens to come out of Buddhism a couple thousand years ago. They talk about this human condition being distilled to kind of three categories. Avoiding things that feel bad, clinging and holding on to and trying to make permanent the things that feel good, and ignoring everything else. And their argument was that this is sort of what perpetuates pain and suffering. And so when we talk about mindfulness itself and practice, experientially, what tends to happen for folks that practice mindfulness is they, they tend to develop a sense of, kind of calm openness in their life, uh, not feeling so jostled around by the circumstantial happenings that are going on around them. Uh, a sense of, uh, of being a little more comfortable in what's called grounded in their own skin. Additionally, people tend to experience an increased sensitivity to sense perceptions the way things taste, the way things sound, music, uh, the way things look, colors. 
you know, a, a greater sense oftentimes of patience. And with that comes a sense of better relationships, really. Uh, this, this sense of uh, an acceptance about life's inevitable challenges. And I think all of those things stem from this fundamental under, underpinning of people who are practicing mindfulness, changing their relationship with pain and experience on kind of a fundamental level, both philosophically and physiologically as well. Now, you know, if we continue to actually talk about the benefits of mindfulness, neurologically speaking, you know, for, for the folks that they're out there that are interested in the, in the science that's there, there are some short-term and then some medium and long-term benefits of mindfulness practice. Uh, the first is, you know, we really see a decreased chemical activity and over time structural matter in the thickness of a really important brain region to all of us mental health folks called the amygdala. Now, as a refresher for folks out there, the amygdala is part of the limbic system. The emotional system is primarily responsible for detecting threat in the environment and initiating that stress response system. And so this is really crucial because that is the part of the brain that initiates the sense of feeling fear, feeling anxiety, feeling uncomfortable in that sort of way. So mindfulness practice itself, we actually show on functional MRI scans, decreased chemical activity in the amygdala, as well as over time, decreased size of the region itself, indicating a decrease in its hypersensitivity to, uh, to threat. And so alongside that, with a sort of decreased chemical activity and, and physical structure and size of the threat detection systems, there's also actually an increase in activity and structure in areas of the brain that do a whole host of things, including processing sensory information, engaging in a task that's called salience detection, where our brain takes in information and decides, what about this is important or not? Can I let some of this go? Or what do I need to cling? What do I need to, to uh, uh, bring in and synthesize to make meaning? Uh, strengthening the ability to do that. Uh, strengthening the ability of higher order thinking, abstract executive functioning, and also areas of our brain that help us feel a sense of compassion and empathy for other people other beings with specific types of mindfulness practice as well. So there's all kinds of changes and benefits that come from this practice. You mentioned reactivity. Uh, one thing I've noticed is reactivity both outside the office and inside the office or off on Zoom and off Zoom is people's reactivity, whether it be in my neighborhood, whether it be who I'm driving next to and you know, to always tell me I'm number one or, uh, or in sessions where people are really activated. You know, what are you seeing with, uh, and what do you think, if you get some concrete examples of interventions that individuals can do, particularly clinicians who basically are uh, majority of our, our viewers, what do you think uh, they could be doing differently or could, as an adjunct to what they're currently doing? Yeah, absolutely, right? So the biggest thing that we can do as therapists and working with our clients uh, of ways to integrate mindfulness into practice is to help our clients engage in the present moment with their body, right? Remember exactly what you're talking about, uh, Kevin, about people being reactive in the therapy room, out in the world. That plugs right into this fundamental philosophy about the human condition. Avoid things that are bad or threatening, hold on to things that feel good and ignore, ignore the rest. And when, when our present moment experience is reduced to that, there's all kinds of information that we're losing. And so what I like to do with clients 
is notice how it is they are avoiding the discomfort of their own experience, how they're trying to, to hold on to and cling to the things that make that sort of pain go away and ignoring everything else and try and expand their capacity to be with what is uncomfortable. So for example, slowing down the content of the story, right? When you ask, I ask my clients, what do you feel in your body when you hear yourself say that? Because right? clients want to go on and this this sort of intellectually uh, uh, storytelling and all that, which is all very important. We, what we don't want to be lost in that process is the client's ability to slow down and say, hey, what's happening in your body emotionally? What are those sensations? Can you know, can I ask you to just, can we take a couple of minutes before we move on and just breathe with what you feel right now before we go on? I really want to hear the rest of your story, right? But the question here for us is, can they stay with that experience in their own body for a little bit longer than they're used to? And can they just watch to see what happens to that over time? So, Here's an, an example of a, of a gentleman that I work with that was going into retirement. And we had already done a, a, a number of mindfulness-based interventions with him. And he was dealing with this sense of, of anxiety about what is my place gonna be in the world? What's going on? How am I gonna do this? And a lot of fear about this. And what I saw in that is the sense of pushing away something that, that feels bad, push it away, push away. I don't know, I don't know. I, I'm not gonna understand what's going on here. And again, he had a number of coping skills with anxiety and so on, and, and it wasn't really working for this. So I asked him, would you be willing to consider the fact that, that this might be your new normal? And when I said that, it sort of took him aback because that's sort of a frightening prospect, isn't it? But as he sat with that and he breathed with that sort of realization in the body, he came back the next week and he said, you know what, I realized, uh, I don't know what's going to happen here moving forward, but I know that I'm going to be able to handle it. In essence, right, when we encourage our clients to stay with the uncomfortable sensation in our therapy room a little bit longer, there's this growing sense of confidence that they have to be with the problem and in essence sort of make the problem less of a problem. Right. So there are obvious boundaries to this, right? In terms of flooding with clients that have traumatic histories and so on, we really want to be mindful about that sort of thing because sometimes that's not really helpful. But again, as clinicians, as much as we can help our clients slow down and pay attention to what's happening in their body and help them be right there with it without trying to get away from it so quickly, that's the greatest thing we can do for as uh, clinicians with our clients. You know, I think there's a great example. I have things popping up in my mind because I wonder if I struggle with this as a clinician. I wonder if others do too. So the clients that are very strong uh, from a cognitive level, academically, uh, you know, at the top of their game, uh, multiple graduate degrees, but yet when you ask them to kind of, you know, what are you thinking and feeling and just sit with it, they're like, and ex you explain it in every way possible. They're like, I really don't understand. I really, it's hard for me to do that. And I know, I don't think it's the concept. It's the actual skill of doing. What, what advice would you give? So what, what advice I would give, when we talk about 
teaching styles, right? Sometimes folks who that this is not an integrated part of their life and who they are and how they navigate through the world, they don't have a map for that. And so sometimes I lead them a little bit. So, right, what are you feeling in your body? I don't, I don't know what that means. Okay, right, so when you tell a story and you have particular emotion in your body, you'll probably feel some kind of sensation somewhere in your body. It might be in your head, it might be in your chest, it might be in your gut. Do you have a sense of where the intensity might be? Oh, there's like some tension in my shoulders. Okay, yeah, so go ahead and just lay your attention and your awareness right on your shoulder. Shine, up, shine it with a, a, like a, the flashlight of your attention right there and start to describe some adjectives about what it's like to be your shoulders right now. You know, again, tight, empty, cold, hot, prickly, warm, uh, light, heavy, dark. You know, what are the adjectives? If you were seeing, if you were trying to describe this sensation to someone else who had never had it before, what are some of the descriptive terms you would use to describe the sensation in your actual body? Oh, well, you know, there's, yeah, I feel sort of in my shoulders because, you know, at my job when my boss said, okay, yeah, actually, let's come back real quick. That's important. I want to hear that. What about adjectives, right? Again, tight, prickly, right? We sort of keep coming back and saying, hey, this is actually what I'm asking about. And here's some examples of answers you might use, right? Providing some sort of map that they can step in. So number one, compassionately and consistently, uh, not letting them off the hook, so to speak, about what you're actually asking, but then also laying out the sort of paved walkway of these are some answers that you might give. It might be in your gut and it might feel staticky and it might feel warm or it might feel tight. Do you feel anything like that? How would you describe it? And you keep coming back to the actual adjectives of the sensations in the body. I found is really helpful in that way. That's very helpful, Alexander. I think as far as some of the our listeners to um, ideas about integrating the mindfulness into their work. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. You have a um, continuing education event that you do through the CBI Center for Education, and it's called Mindfulness-Based Psychotherapy, What, Why, and How. And you have it coming up on August the 9th uh, from 12 to 3 p.m. Eastern. It's $10 for anyone who's interested in participating. Uh, but could you tell us a little bit about your three-hour course and, and what a participant could expect? Absolutely, yeah. So mindfulness-based psychotherapy, what, why, and how? We're gonna be talking about the what of mindfulness. What is mindfulness? What is it not? How have people related to this idea of mindfulness over time? Why? Why is it important? What do we see in the brain? What do we see in experience? What does the research show about this and how? What does it actually look like in the therapy room? And this is actually another limb of, of the question that you asked, Kevin, is a part of, uh, for folks who are highly intelligent, have a very strong intellect, this is why I think the research around mindfulness is so huge because those people are not just gonna do something because someone told them it might be a good idea. They need to know why. They need to have background information. They're, intro, they're, they're, they're interested in education. And so part of what I've worked into this, this event through the Center for Education is what do you as a clinician need to know about mindfulness, the what, why, and how, so that you can provide psychoeducation to your clients about what mindfulness is, 
why it's important. How is it going to work for them? Why does it matter? Why should they give it a shot? Because when folks can intellectualize, this is important and this is why, they're much more willing to give it a go. So I really try and work that in their sound bites throughout this of, of this is how you might teach this kind of thing to clients. This is the information they're going to need to know to bite on this so that you can help them in this way. Wonderful. Do you think that it would be possible for you to lead us in a short mindfulness exercise as we wrap up the episode today? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Kevin, are you game? Yeah, I see, I, I lean back in the chair here. Yeah, there I you like go, it. getting ready, the mindfulness posture, right? So, so go ahead and I'll, I'll, I'll encourage everyone, whoever, you know, listening, um, go ahead and sit as you are or stand as you are. No need to necessarily change your body too much. And I'm gonna direct in the beginning a little bit about where your concentration lies, right? Go ahead and, and shine the, the, the flashlight of your attention. We're gonna go through just a, a body scan right through your body right now, asking this question, what is it like to be in your body right now? And here's the thing, we're not trying to change anything. We're not trying to make it different. We're just trying to take a look like a scientist looking into a petri dish. What do we have here? So if you want to close your eyes, if you want to have a downward gaze, if that's helpful, you can do that. You can totally have your eyes open. If you're driving, think about maybe engaging in this practice later when you're not driving, because that's probably a good idea here. I don't want you focusing on anything but the road. Very helpful tip. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So go ahead and just focus right on the top of your head. And like a line sort of moving down, kind of like a CAT scan, just sensing physical sensations in your forehead, in your jaw, your lips and your ears, the back of your head, and right down into your neck. And you're, you're just continuing to breathe here as your attention goes down into your upper chest, shoulders and upper back down your arms to your elbows, forearms, and hands. And then from your upper chest and upper back down into your abdomen and perhaps pay attention for a moment as you breathe in and as you breathe out, see if you can become aware of your skin as it inflates and brushes up against your clothing and the actual physical sensation of being in your body as your chest and your abdomen deflate. and then down through your abdomen into your pelvis, your whole pelvic bowl and attaching right into your femurs and your thigh and your knees down through your calves and your feet. And for the next couple of breaths, just taking in your whole body as it is right now, the, the points of contact between your body and the environment, the chair, the floor, the air, even, if you can sense that. And so this is a baseline of your body. What it feels like to be in your body right now. For better or for worse, here it is. Here it is right now. And, and what I want you to call to mind, so this is a bit of a practice of mindfulness of emotion, okay? And so I want you to call to mind a situation that occurred or is occurring that maybe produces a small amount of discomfort. On a scale of zero to 10, 10 being this is unfathomably intense and zero being uh, 
totally relaxed laying on the beach if you're a beach person, unless that stresses you out, maybe that's a good event to use for this. Maybe a three, a three or a four, and sort of play that movie in your mind a couple of times until you start to feel some sensation somewhere in your body. And if your mind floats away, travels off into some other corner of the universe, that's fine. You just notice that and you invite it right back in and play this movie a couple more times. And as you start to feel that sense of sensation or discomfort somewhere in your body, go ahead and move your attention right down to that spot, be it in your head, your shoulders, your chest, your gut, anywhere. And go ahead and wrap your attention around that physical sensation, like a mist or a fog, you're just watching. And as you breathe in, see in your mind's eye, your breath sort of traveling through your body and enhancing the clarity of that sensation. You're not trying to change it. You're not trying to make it go away. You're seeing it more clearly. And as you exhale, try and relax the space around that sensation so it can relax into the experience of that discomfort. We're not trying to relax the discomfort away. We're trying to relax our body in the face of the discomfort so it can be there. We can make room for it. So we breathe in and we see that discomfort a little more clearly. We breathe out and, and we try and let our body relax into that discomfort a little more. And call to mind for you a couple of adjectives. How would you describe this sensation in your body to anyone else? Is it perhaps cold, hot, pinching, staticky, smoky, heavy, light, energetic, fiery? Just imagine what are some of those adjectives and as you breathe in, become more aware of that sensation as you exhale, allowing your body to relax into it a bit more. Now a note is that sometimes this might intensify the sensation. Sometimes this might um, decrease the intensity of the sensation. We're not looking for anything in particular. We're looking to see it as it is. And so over the next few breaths, just watch and see what you see. And again, not if, but when the mind stumbles away to wherever it's going, that's okay. We just notice that and bring it right back to the sensation in the body. We drop the storyline of the sensation and we come on back to the experience of it. A couple more breaths, just watching. And so now, as is always a good idea with any kind of mindfulness practice, we're gonna go ahead and end, end this experiment, this practice gradually. So if your eyes are closed, you can begin to, to flutter them open a bit, first with a downward gaze and slowly with each breath, just 
raising the level of your gaze to take in more of the room and seeing what you see. Perhaps noticing a few qualities about the space that you're in, light, shadow, color, objects that you haven't noticed yet today. And then again, expand your attention just back into the fullness of your whole body in this space as we transition back into the conversation. Well, thank you very much, Alexander. That was certainly a, a very nice experience, I'll say, especially in the middle of a work day. So I appreciate you taking the time uh, to uh, spend with us today and with our listeners. So thank you so much. And uh, again, if anyone is interested, just as a reminder, uh, Alexander has his event coming up on August the 9th from 12 to 3 p.m. Eastern time, mindfulness-based psychotherapy, what, why, and how. You can register on our website at www.cbicenterforeducation.com. And thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. We truly appreciate it. And we'll definitely have you on again uh, to further talk, you know, not only mindfulness, but also uh, probably related to the Gottman, Gottman couples. So we appreciate all your expertise. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again for having me. And thanks so much to our listeners for joining us for the Barrier Breakdown. We hope that you stay safe and healthy and we'll see you next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health. Listeners can find all of our episodes on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. For more information and to learn about upcoming continuing education events, check out our website, cbicenterforeducation.com, our Facebook pages, Cognitive Behavior Institute, and CBI Center for Education, as well as our Instagram at Cognitive Behavior Institute, and our Twitter at CBI underscore Pittsburgh. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. We hope you'll tune in for another guest next week.